at 7 p.m. Now time for Jennifer Stone and Stone's Throw. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is uh, Tuesday, August the 11th, 2009. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Oh, that hell cat Hillary shot off her mouth again. Yes. um, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure what we're going to do with Hillary. She lost her cool. uh, I like to call her HRC, you know, uh, her royal whatever. <laughs> anyway, Hillary Rodham. Um, I'm glad she did that. Uh, Virginia Woolf used to warn women against being shrill. She said, you know, you must uh, resist, of course, but don't be shrill, you know. Thank the goddess Hillary was shrill. Uh, I think... Uh, I think it's time that um, women were allowed to be obnoxious. Uh, She doesn't have to be subservient anymore. I see that, of course, uh, she's free now because she's in a position of power. She can get angry. But (laughs) then I thought about it. If she, as Secretary of State, is free to be honest, then why is Barack Obama not free to say honestly what he feels. Uh, Remember when he said that the police acted stupidly. It was a spontaneous response. Oh, you know, they arrested Henry Gates, the business uh, over at Cambridge. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe gender trumps race. But in any case, it's it's the national conversation. It's a learning experience. Uh, It's a chance for the um, children to uh, take 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 the um, uh, the events yes current events we used to call that um, soap opera stuff uh, but you know it's a way for us to um, work out the issues I was thinking so many people react and say why do you pay attention to all that nonsense or you know why do you listen to um, Celebrity gossip, and I always say because it is, it is our national conversation, our soap opera, the chattering classes. I, I miss my high school classroom times like this. Uh, I love the teenagers arguing. They, they're such idealists, you know. They always think it's okay to do what's right. And, you know, they, they sometimes have to think twice when they realize that maybe you can't always say just what you think. Uh, I guess if a 
black male president has to watch his mouth, then a white female secretary of state has to be careful what she says for public uh, consumption, on the other hand. Uh, the situation for, say, women in the Congo is so horrific, I think she should scream her head off. I'm trying to remember when I was 16, sitting in a civics class we had, uh, putting myself back in Laguna Beach High School, when Harry Truman fired uh, General MacArthur and my high school teacher. He came dancing into class, and he was so happy, and he explained about how it was right for civilian uh, civilians, uh, governments, uh, to uh, tell the military what to do, you know, not to let the military take over. Uh, he was so happy that Truman had fired uh, the grandiose General MacArthur, but some of the boys weren't sure about that. Uh, anyway, I think that teenagers are capable of understanding irony. As a matter of fact, they're very good at it. Uh, but most of all, young people are romantics, and they want to see their leaders defending the weak. This is, uh, what is it, the way leaders set an example. I think of Hillary Clinton as uh, a hero for young women, young women who appreciate her declaration that women should not be used as weapons of war always, or at least uh, most of the time in the past, we know that rape has been, uh, well, uh, you know, it was not seen as um, what you call that uh, front-line weaponry, right? Uh, and, of course, that's what it is. Rape is a war crime. I think, you know, just that one statement over and over again might get through to some people. Uh, how else do you... Uh, smash a society than to uh, smash its women. Uh, I hope Hillary can hold the leaders of the developing world, hold their feet to the fire, and make them commit to protecting women's human rights. Always women are relegated to the last on the list. Uh, Mrs. Clinton, uh, Mrs., well, Ms. Rodham, began her work, her public work, years ago with children's rights. That was always her big thing. Uh, it's a diplomatic way to help women improve their lives. You know, if we go for women, especially women in their childbearing years, if we help them, then we lift all boats. Now, she's in a position today to be more direct, uh, you know, when you help women, you help families, society. I don't know why this is so hard for for people to grasp. We know all this stuff now, you know, the uh, uh, small loans, guys, that kind of thing. But reality is still right in front of us. The facts tell us that male dominance, um, male supremacy... Uh, is a stone wall or glass ceiling in most societies. Nothing changes till men love their children more than they hate their enemies. Same old, same old, you know, until they look ahead and rise above their own um, egos. Stop uh, beating their breasts, talking about their manhood. 
the wise fathers of the world know that uh, respect for human life begins with respect for women, for mothers. It extends to all women and children, you know. I don't know why, um, what is it, uh, these self-evident things need to be taught. I'm not sure we used to talk about what we would teach in schools, schools for all women. I know what's taught there. I went to some, but um, masculine male schools. Now, that would be an interesting thing. We know what they have done in the past, and we also know what they're doing uh in the madrasas, so let's 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 work out a curriculum for uh, young men, a school for young men. I'll work one out. Uh, get a course list. Anyway, something to teach partnership modeling. Yes, how to act in partnership with other men and with women. I used to ask high school students if they could think of women. Uh, as uh, their fellow men. Uh, they kind of choked on that one. It uh, didn't quite fit. Uh, I We looked up the word man and found out that it, uh, it's been, I think, since the 8th century. Back in the old days, we were all, let's see, the word was man, M-A-N-N, and you could be a vifman, that's a female uh, human, or a fairman, that's a male human, but it got complicated, and pretty soon, of course, the word whiff just became wife, and then uh, women were subsumed into the male. Uh, anyway, it's the language that confuses most people. You know, you talk about husbandry. Husbandry means management, taking care of, caretaker, helpmate. But when it slips into authoritarian styles or tyranny, you know, that's the source of what's wrong with society. We used to say fascism begins in the cradle. The old Latin, the old uh, word familia simply meant all the slaves belonging to one Roman citizen. All the women and children and, you know, chattel. <laughs> Beware of those who dwell on uh, authoritarianism or punishment. The the revolution of touch, you know, the uh, uh, the world where affection wins over people and civilizes them. That uh, bloomed for a moment back in the 1960s, but then the backlash set in. The backlash has been fierce. Uh, Got Ronald Reagan and government by anecdote. Um, he gave us friendly fascism. I still think that the so-called 60s, mostly 70s it was, uh, showed us what is possible. Gave us a glimpse of a utopian world in which uh, we cooperated like the fingers of a hand, you know. In which it was uh, conceivable to live in a world... Uh, what is that, without hostilities, that is, without looking for an enemy. The way we work now, um, there's a show on television tonight about the inevitability of war and this need we have always to seek out an enemy. Um, apparently some guys can't process information without being told 
uh, who the enemy is. Like the Marines, they only know one command, attack. Anyway, long ago when my children were uh, coming into the world, 1960 and 62, we did have this moment, this, uh, you remember, Kennedy's in the White House, if you're old enough, <laughs> back Back in the day, gosh, yes, the last, one of the last of the Kennedys has died, Eunice Shriver, age 88. Um, this week, uh, Eunice Shriver, she worked, she did um, the kind of work Eleanor Roosevelt did and more, worked for the less fortunate. Uh, I think, I don't know if she is the eldest in the family, Ted Kennedy, of course, is still alive. Uh, Rose Kennedy said that Eunice had done the most important thing working for um, the retarded uh, one of the one of the Kennedy girls uh, was mildly retarded and Rose Kennedy said that they hid this because they were ashamed it was the fashion in the 1940s not to talk about members of your family if they weren't uh, if they were intellectually impaired uh, anyway uh, Eunice Shriver worked in the tradition of the liberal, humane government. Uh, she did woman's work. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, woman's work. Her daughter is Maria Shriver, as I'm sure KPFA audiences know. Maria Shriver married Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I figured that meant that Arnold had to have something going for him, uh, I don't know if that was a sellout or whether she brought him into the liberal camp a bit. Uh, strange bedfellow, some people said. I I don't think necessarily that's true. Uh, I was thinking about that. I, I have the impression that perhaps since Arnold is a social liberal, he will begin to understand that um, his economic conservatism won't work. You know, uh, you must feed the people. Uh Actually, I think he's beginning to get it. He said on the telly the other night, he said uh, that we must live within our means, for Christ's sake. Uh, that's all very well, but you have to have means. I remember my favorite depression story, the one about Eleanor Roosevelt telling the staff at the White House back in the uh, depression days of the 1930s. She said that there was a 20% cut for the entire staff, that that was the the decision, and one of the workers in the kitchen informed her that if there were a 20% cut in her wages, she, the kitchen maid, would not be able to uh, take the bus to work. There simply was a bottom, you know, beneath which she could not fall. <laughs> yes, you think you've hit bottom. Oh, no, there's a bottom below. Mrs. Roosevelt finally understood that you could be just so poor. Then there was a limit. Uh, anyway... A couple of weeks ago, I brought to the station an issue of uh, the Progressive, dated April 2009, and I brought it here because it's the most amazing thing I've been carrying it around with me. It's a hundred-year anniversary issue, and what I've been reading it for is perspective. You no know, history, folks, learn your place in time, and of course, what it teaches over this hundred-year period, 1909 to 2009, is that not much changes. Of course, it changes in degree. But I'm looking here, thinking of Eunice, 
Shriver, uh, uh, let's see, here it is. Eleanor Roosevelt, Eulogy at a Memorial by Adelaide Stevenson, January 1963. Here it is. Eunice lived 88 years. Eleanor Roosevelt, writes Adelaide Stevenson, lived 78 years. Most of the time in tireless activity, as if she knew that only a frail fragment of the things that cry out to be done could be done in the lifetime of even the most fortunate. Yet how much she had done, and how much still unchronicled. We dare not try to tabulate the lives she salvaged, the battles known and unrecorded. She fought... She fought for the afflicted. She comforted uh, all those. She met the hovels that she brightened and the faces and the places near and far that were given some new radiance, some sound of music by her endeavors. Anyway, that's back in 1963. Once again, the eulogy for all those people who do good in the world. It's interesting. Uh, right next to that article in 1963 is the letter from Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King, Jr., July 1963, Tears of Love. All about the word wait. King writes, It rings in the ears of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has always meant Never. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. And he goes on. There's a wonderful sketch here uh, of a black man caught in the thorns reaching for a rose. says, what do you mean, not so fast? (laughs) Anyway, same old, same old, folks. I read this stuff, yes, read it and weep. And then I think about uh, our poor prez out there struggling to get the health care going. I don't know. Last week, I read to you a little bit of an article by Kevin Baker from Harper's uh, called Barack Hoover Obama, all about the fact that uh, the prez is doing the right thing. It isn't like uh, he's the Antichrist. You know, we knew that the Bush administration was definitely anti-everything. Certainly certainly they weren't weren't trying to help the people. But, uh, of course, now we have this new situation that's, well, not more painful, but God knows, uh, it's kind of like, you know, watching your dear parents fail. You you know that they want to do the right thing and you see that they're just up against something they can't uh, cope with. And it does look as if maybe, maybe the president won't be able to pull off the uh, health care situation. I think maybe we're going to have to do that year by year and state by state and, you know, slouching towards socialism. My father used to describe it. Uh, he said, well, you just do do it yourself, socialism. Uh, I remember he was a general practitioner out in Richmond, California. And he would say, oh, well, you know, 
uh, 10% for Jesus, you know, just write it off, write the bills off, you know. Uh, 10% for Jesus or the Reds will get us. That was his 1940s attitude towards, towards uh, capitalism and socialism. He overcharged the rich and uh, then, you know, with the others he just... Uh, Oh, he'd send him a bill and maybe maybe even two bills before he gave up. But the thing is, uh, we don't see much of that anymore. Most people don't just uh, do what's needed. Well, some do, some do. I wanted to read you just a little bit of this Barack Hoover Obama piece. In case you want to go out and get this copy, it's the, is it the July issue? I think so, yes. It's the July July 2009 issue of Harper's Magazine, Kevin Baker, uh, Barack Hoover Obama, his point being that Herbert Hoover was not a bad guy. In no way was he a bad guy. And don't mix him up with J. Edgar Hoover. I got a note the other day, someone confused. J. Edgar Hoover from the FBI with Herbert Hoover. Herb was a good guy. He simply, uh, you know, was... In a bind, in a bind, in a bind. Uh, let me see. Uh, Kevin Baker writes, the best, the best and the brightest. Blow it again. He says, uh, Barack Obama has proven to be every bit as charismatic and intelligent as his most ardent supporters could have hoped. At home or abroad, he invariably appears to be the only adult in the room, the first American president in at least 40 years to convey any gravitas. Even the most liberal of voters are finding it hard to believe they managed to elect this man to be their president. It is impossible not to wish desperately for his success as he tries to grapple with all that confronts him. Worldwide depression, catastrophic climate change, unjust and inadequate health care system, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the ongoing disgrace of Guantanamo, a floundering education system. Obama's failure would be unthinkable, and yet the best indications now are that he will fail because he will be unable, indeed he will refuse, to seize the radical moment at hand. Every instinct the president has honed, every voice he hears in Washington, every inclination of our political culture, urges incrementalism, urges deliberation, if any significant change is to be brought about. The trouble is that we are at one of those rare moments in history when the radical becomes pragmatic, when deliberation and compromise foster disaster. The question is not what can be done, but what must be done. We have confronted such emergencies only a few times before in the history of the Republic. During the secession crisis of 1860-61, at the start of World War II, the onset of the Cold War, the nuclear age. Probably the moment most comparable to the present was the start of the Great Depression. And for the scope and the quantity of the problems, Obama has frequently been compared with Franklin Roosevelt. So far, though, 
he most resembles that other president who had to confront that crisis, Herbert Hoover. This comparison is not meant to be flippant. It has nothing to do with the received image of Hoover, the dour, round-collared, gerbil-cheeked technocrat who looked on with indifference while the country went to pieces. To understand how dire our situation is, it is necessary to remember that when Hoover was elected president in 1928, Herbert Hoover was widely considered the most capable public figure in the country. Hoover, like Obama, was almost certainly someone gifted with more intelligence, a better education, and a greater range of life experience than FDR. There, I'm, I wrote a big um, note next to that. Uh, this is Kevin Baker's article, and I would disagree. I think that uh, FDR's life experience was, oh, pretty interesting. Um, Kevin Baker goes on to talk about um, the fact that Hoover's life had more range, let's put it, more breadth, perhaps, than FDR's. Baker goes on to say that Hoover... And through the first three years of the Depression, was also the man who comprehended better than anyone else what was happening and what needed to be done. Yet he failed. Now, the next section of this article goes on to describe uh, Herbert Hoover's life as a penniless orphan and uh, the depth of his experience and... Uh, Let's see, he was in the very first class at the newly opened, Stanford, newly opened Stanford University and how he made a killing and became a rich man. And let's see, all about his, um, his life. Let's see, he went to Peking during the Boxer Rebellion of 1900. His fearless wife, Lu, together the two of them cared enough to sneak food and water to the Chinese Christians who were besieged in the city. Anyway, he has a very dramatic and uh, fascinating history. And this article goes on to describe his relief efforts, how he rescued millions of people throughout Europe and the Soviet Union. Uh, yes, 20 million people are starving. Whatever their politics, they shall be fed. Uh, we have summoned a great engineer to solve our problems, and on and on. He did everything right. He did everything right. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, genius got its chance. Let me see. Now, skipping into the end, because I'm almost out of time here, I want to just read you a little paragraph that asks the question of why. Why was Herbert Hoover so reluctant to make the radical changes that were so clearly needed? It could not have been a question of competence or compassion for this lifelong Quaker who had rushed sustenance to starving people around the world, regardless of their nationalities or beliefs. Ultimately, Herbert Hoover could not break with the prevailing beliefs of his day. The essence of the progressive era in which he had come of age, the very essence of his own public image, was that government was a science. It was not a coincidence that this era brought in the very term political science, 
along with the advent of non-partisan elections and city managers to replace mayors. Since the 1890s, Hoover and his contemporaries had promoted this brand of progressivism as an alternative, not only to the political and corporate corruption of the Gilded Age, but also to the furious class and regional warfare that progressivism's predecessor, populism, seemed to promise. I wish I had time to finish this analysis of why Herbert Hoover was unable to make the dramatic changes needed in 1929, why we had to wait for FDR to come along and do things that people thought were impossible. Who knows how Barack will be able to make this imaginative leap. I hope he does. I will be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. This has been Jennifer Stone. Rosa sat so that Martin could walk. I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen, even in Montgomery, Alabama. And Martin walked so that President Obama could run. We are faced with a situation where we find restlessness among the poor and discontent among the affluent. In a special three-part series featuring the voices of the past and the minds of the future, the Pacifica Radio Archives brings together the Pacifica Radio Network to discuss redefining black power in the age of Obama. Tune in Sunday, August 16th from 7.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. to hear this radio documentary which features contributions from all of the Pacifica Network stations. That's this Sunday, August 16th, beginning at 7.30 p.m.